This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. May 3rd, 1999, late afternoon in Grady County, Oklahoma. Rich Thompson and Roger Edwards of the Storm Prediction Center were racing down country back roads, chasing a storm that Rich had first issued a warning for that morning. It had only continued to grow in severity as the afternoon progressed. Supercell A, as it had been termed, began to produce multiple tornadoes more than they had ever seen in a single storm system. Some fizzled and died quickly. Others sprang to life simultaneously. It was an awe-inspiring display. Rich shouted over the noise of the van, would you look at that? As they hit a bump, Rich glared at Roger in the driver's seat and said, am I gonna have to ask the state to suspend your license there, roommate? Before Roger could respond, Both men had their attention drawn to the latest computer trajectories for the storm cell. It was moving quickly to the northeast, directly toward Oklahoma City. And the storm just kept on going. Rich and Roger could barely keep up. They had to be on top of their game, picking the best roads to get the best views and thus the best readings, all while also keeping their own safety in mind. It was exhilarating work. This was the most exciting storm of their careers. But for the people of the nearby suburbs of Bridge Creek and Moore, Supercell A would bring only death and destruction. No one knew it yet, but within the hour, they would be dealing with the most powerful tornado in recorded history. Welcome to Survival on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our first of two episodes on the Bridge Creek Moor tornado of May 3rd, 1999. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Dangerous weather has plagued man since the dawn of time. And despite millennia of technological advancement, humans are only marginally more equipped to combat severe storms than in times past. Luckily, encountering such storms is rare. They don't form often, and when they do, there is a low probability that they will strike a populated area. On those rare occasions when humans do find themselves in the midst of a hurricane or at the mercy of a tornado, quick decision-making, coupled with a certain amount of luck, can be the key to survival. When it comes to surviving a tornado, an individual's chances increase dramatically if they're able to find shelter within a man-made structure rather than trying to survive outside. In today's episode, we'll see how two groups of people fare as one takes shelter in their home and the other is forced underneath the questionable shelter of a freeway overpass. As Irma walks us through the story, I'll delve into the strategies they use to survive. Next week, we'll uncover the fate of everyone involved and follow the town's recovery and the disaster's lasting effects on the region. Now let's travel back nearly two decades to May 3rd, 1999, just before the tornado strikes. As author Nancy Mathis has noted, Oklahoma City in 1999 was focused on three things, football, oil, and weather. Its oil production, historically among the most significant in the country, was at an all-time low in 1999. The last thing this already fragile industry needed was a tornado to come along and wipe out the oil infrastructure that kept the state afloat. As a result, meteorology played a particularly significant role in the state. The Norman, Oklahoma-based Storm Prediction Center, which had been founded just a few years prior in 1995, monitors weather for the entire United States. The meteorologists there can issue watches and warnings for areas they believe are about to be affected by severe weather. And on May 3rd, 1999, they did just that. After watching a storm cell in Comanche County, about 100 miles southwest of Oklahoma City, that showed signs of tornado-like activity. No sooner had they issued the warnings than the storm produced its first tornado, and shortly after, its second. The storm cell journeyed north to Caddo County, where three more tornadoes formed. It then continued east, edging closer and closer to Oklahoma City, the state's largest metropolis. As tornadoes 6, 7, and 8 were formed, the latter destroying some hangars at the Chickasha Airport, the meteorologists at the Storm Center, as well as those observing from the road, realized that there would likely soon be tornado activity on top of significant population centers. Their only recourse was to send out more warnings and hope that the tornadoes would remain at medium intensity. They wouldn't. Scott Pittman, 35 years old, winced in the front seat of his car. He was trying to focus on traffic, 
but his two female friends kept turning up the radio. He hated the Backstreet Boys. He thought he and his friends were past the brunt of rush hour traffic, but apparently not. Cars were backed up thick. There were storm clouds in the distance. Maybe the rain was slowing people down. Everyone glared at the radio with dread. Scott listened. His stomach started to churn as the weathermen on the radio warned that an F5 tornado was approaching from the south. Anyone who could hear this needed to take shelter. Only, where were they supposed to take shelter? They were in the middle of the highway in between towns. Scott thought, screw this, and turned his car around, heading back north on the I-44 highway. On the same stretch of road, Kathleen Walton, 40, was driving with her son, Levi, 11. She, too, grew concerned at the radio announcement and the wall of clouds to the south. But she was already headed north and felt that they would safely outrun the tornado in their car. She turned to Levi in the passenger seat, smiling at him, hoping he wasn't getting scared. She said, the Lord will protect us and patted him on the head. She glanced back in the rear view at the storm clouds behind them. Traffic began to slow. She internally cursed the cars in front of her. They needed to be moving faster, not grinding to a halt. It's unlikely that Kathleen would have been able to reach the speeds required to outrun the storm, traffic or not. To outrun a 100 mile per hour tornado, you need to drive faster than 100 miles per hour. Avoiding a tornado is more about direction. She needed to head east or west, and she was stuck on a north-south highway. In a nearby car was Kevin Weber, 39. He was an engineer with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and as such, had enough of an idea about storms to know that he was in trouble. He had heard about bad weather to the south, but thought he had enough time to make it into the city for his meeting. Tornadoes can be unpredictable like this. Not only do they touch down without notice, they move at speeds that are difficult for humans to gauge correctly. What seems distant can be up close in an instant. Kevin could see that traffic was slowing to a point where it would eventually result in gridlock. He considered taking an exit, trying to find a gas station or somewhere to take shelter but he knew that there weren't many structures at all surrounding this stretch of the highway. Back in his car, Scott Pittman was enraged by the dead-end traffic. His friends were talking loudly, and the radio was still on, so he almost didn't hear the dull roar coming from behind them. Scott reached over and turned off the radio. He shushed his friends. His eyes widened as he could hear the sound clearly for the first time. This wasn't just wind. Somehow, instinctively, he knew the tornado was coming. Scott and his friends abandoned their vehicle. Looking to the southwest, they could see that Scott was right. The tornado was on top of them. The only nearby shelter was the freeway overpass. They remembered a film crew had survived a tornado a few years previous by hiding underneath a similar structure. It was their only hope. Kathleen Walton parked the car. 
There wasn't anywhere to go that wasn't blocked by traffic anyways. Maybe they could just let the storm pass over. <laughs> Kathleen let out an involuntary scream. As she looked through the back windshield, she saw the column of traffic behind them begin to levitate into the air. What she had thought was a wall of clouds wasn't clouds at all. It was the massive, dark body of the tornado, so large that it filled their entire field of view. In front of her, car passengers were exiting their vehicles and racing for the sides of the road. Some attempted to push their cars around traffic. Still others drove straight into the prairie. It's only natural to resist leaving a car on the road in the midst of a crisis. It's typically the best means of escape, the only barrier to the elements outside. But in the case of a tornado, a car is an extremely dangerous place to be. If the passengers inside are lifted into the air with the vehicle, then they will almost surely be crushed as the extreme winds warp the metal of the automobile into an unrecognizable husk. Kathleen let out another scream as her windshield spiderwebbed. Next to her, her son Levi looked terrified. Up ahead, she could see people taking shelter beneath an overpass. She felt the voice of God compelling her to take her boy and do the same. Kevin Weber cursed himself as he climbed over parked cars and desperately tried to reach the overpass in time. His eardrums throbbed with the otherworldly rush of the tornado. Visibility was decreasing with each step. He finally reached the slope of the overpass and began to hike up the side. The three strangers there waved him over, helping him to ascend. Behind him, a mother and her young son also attempted to climb for the safety of the overpass. They were almost swallowed by the rushing winds but the other survivors pulled them up and tried to make room. There were six people in total, Kevin Weber, Levi and Kathleen Walton, and Scott Littman and his two friends. All were taking shelter beneath the same overpass. All were about to experience the full fury of an F5 tornado, and all would not survive. Next up, We'll travel a few miles to the northeast, to Moore, Oklahoma, where the Cusack family braces themselves as the tornado approaches their home. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. 
episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. And now, back to the story. It was May 3rd, 1999, a little after 6 p.m. in Moore, Oklahoma. The local populace didn't know it yet, but they were about to be hit by the most powerful tornado in recorded history. Charlie Cusack entered his living room to find his two daughters watching Nickelodeon, waiting to see if their favorite boy band won that week's call-in vote. He didn't know why they bothered. The Backstreet Boys always won. Regardless, he needed to change the channel. He had just been outside, and it looked like there were some pretty serious storms blowing in from the south. The girls, of course, objected, but this was important. The most reliable information about the course of the storm could be found on the local news. Charlie was a stocky man, his hairline receding. Oklahoma was home. Not only did he live here in the house with his wife and two daughters, but his parents and many of his siblings lived nearby as well. Watching a tornado on the news was a pastime for him. It never got old, seeing those storm chasers trying to get the best video of those twirling monsters. But he had never seen the weatherman this intense before. Dan Threlkeld was on Channel 4 telling people that you need to get off the road. The news station put up a graphic with tornado tips. Stay calm, stay inside, stay where you are, wrap in a blanket or coat. As the camera feeds came in, incredible video showed a massive tornado planting itself firmly within the center of a quaint Oklahoma suburb. Threlkeld screamed, look at the debris as swirling black clouds were illuminated by streetlights. It looked like swarms of giant insects. Tornadic storm cells will often produce hail, as the same shifts in airflow that are required to create hail can also lead to funnel clouds. Charlie and his daughter Catherine watched from their open front door as the grapefruit-sized chunks of ice rained down on their neighborhood. As Charlie surveyed the other houses, he noticed a giant black cloud covering most of the horizon. The image was almost identical to what he had just seen on the TV screen. He realized that the footage was of his own area. From behind him, Charlie's wife Pat arrived from the kitchen with tacos she had made to take to that evening's Girl Scout event. Charlie turned to face her. She was gonna have to put those in the refrigerator. He began to comb the house for the best place to have his family ride out the storm. Their closets were mostly full, and their staircase wasn't the kind with open space underneath. He remembered that the weatherman said to find a room with concrete walls or to go to the basement. A concrete reinforced room is ideal in a tornado, as the winds are unlikely to be able to pick up a concrete wall, nor is it likely to crumble in the way that a wooden fortification might splinter. The Cusack home was mostly of wooden construction, but it did at least have a basement, providing for some protection. 
as the tornado fell upon the house, the noise was deafening. It was as if the walls weren't even there. Charlie, still in the hallway, quickly slid on a leather bomber jacket. He felt the thick material would protect him from debris. He joined his family in the downstairs bathroom, where he placed the two girls in the tub and stood blocking the door, hoping to keep any debris from flying in. The nearby Storm Prediction Center had only received increasingly bad news throughout the evening. The storm cell was showing no signs of stopping, and the most recent tornado, the ninth from this cell, had just been upgraded to an F5. This refers to the Fujita scale, the tornado classification system created by severe weather expert Tetsuya Fujita in 1971. It divides tornadoes into six categories, ranging from an F0, with winds in the 40 to 72 miles per hour range, to an F5, with winds in the 261 to 318 miles per hour range. However, the scale is most useful in describing the types of damage each category of tornado is capable of. The first three categories are damaging enough. Forests can be destroyed, vehicles flipped over, roofs ripped off houses. But the last three categories, from F3 to F5, can be especially terrifying. Trains are sucked into the air, houses are picked up off of their foundations and hurled miles away. All of that is possible with just an F4 tornado. The damage of an F5 tornado is uniquely horrendous. On the Fujita scale, it is described as capable of incredible damage, as opposed to the F4's devastating damage. What that means is that an F5 tornado doesn't just devastate the landscape. It creates conditions that seem to violate the laws of physics. It is truly dreadnought. Those who witness the damage from an F5 are humbled by the destructive power of nature. Imagine entire office buildings being picked up whole, turned over, spun around three times, then thrown into the next county. Dried street asphalt can be reliquified and spit out across the landscape. Semi-trucks can be turned into bullets, shot out of the tornado and through the roof of a structure. Conversely, tiny objects become like supersonic warheads. Imagine a pencil slicing a boulder in half. As meteorologists monitored the tornado on May 3, 1999, they were horrified to see that it grew into an F5 as it approached some of the most populated areas of Oklahoma. But even worse, it wasn't just an F5 tornado. It was the most powerful F5 tornado ever recorded. Its wind speeds were pushing 318 miles per hour. Meteorologists had long feared that something like this was possible. As mentioned earlier, severe weather of this magnitude is rare. It's even rarer that a supercell would form on top of a major metropolitan area. But again, this is simply because it's statistically unlikely for those two rare events to occur simultaneously. The world is a big place, but there is nothing about large cities that inherently protects them from severe weather. In theory, 
A downtown area filled with skyscrapers is just as likely to be hit by a tornado as a small rural town with just a few houses. And so, meteorologists at the SPC that summer knew that if the tornado did hit Oklahoma City and the surrounding suburbs, there would be little they could do but tell people to seek shelter. Of course, some buildings are made with sturdier construction than others, but against 318-mile-an-hour winds, those differences mean little. And a tornado hitting a higher population area also simply means that there are more people in danger. If a tornado hits a small town of 100 people, statistically speaking, most of those people are at home, at work, or in their car. In at least two of those three situations, they have a strong chance of finding adequate shelter. But imagine that a tornado hits a busy metropolitan area, such as New York City. People are at home and at work and in their cars, but they are also on subways, rail cars, and walking short distances. Those in their cars are pinned in by high levels of traffic not present in smaller cities. Those at home and at work are in high-rise apartments and offices where underground shelter is a several-minute elevator ride away. As the citizens of Bridge Creek and more found out on May 3, 1999, tornadoes arrive much more rapidly than anyone expects. There is no time to wait on traffic or an elevator or for public transportation to come to a stop. People who find themselves in those situations during a tornado would be sitting ducks. And though Oklahoma City is, of course, not as massive a metropolis as something like New York City, many of these same logistical concerns were still present. In addition to the fear of the tornado hitting a major metropolitan area, meteorologists in 1999 also had to worry about the unpredictability of severe weather. And they still do to this day. Because the reality is, there is a lot about severe storms that meteorologists still don't understand. Even trying to explain what a tornado is in simple terms can be difficult. But it's easier to understand tornadoes when considering the region where 80% of them take place. Tornado Alley, the American Midwest. The American Midwest exists at a confluence of three different atmospheric variations the moist, warm air from the Gulf of Mexico, the dry air of the Rocky Mountains, and the cold air from Canada. As those three weather fronts meet in the skies above states like Oklahoma and Kansas, a process known as vertical wind shear takes place. Wind shear is a term used to describe the process of warm air near the Earth's surface quickly rising into the atmosphere as the dry, cold air above descends. The sudden change in temperature and air pressure is what produces a thunderstorm. And if the wind speeds are high enough and the wind direction changes sharply enough, the storm cloud begins to rotate. And from that rotation, multiple tornadoes can emerge. As we've said, it's something that occurs in states like Oklahoma and Kansas hundreds of times a year. Not surprisingly, the citizens there become numb to the dangers of tornadoes. Those who grow up in these areas have lived through literally hundreds of these intense storms by the time they reach their 20s. 
watching the storms unfold from a TV screen or from the front porch is common. But despite everything meteorologists do know about tornadoes, they are still unable to tell exactly if wind shear will become intense enough to form a tornado, or if it will simply produce thunder, lightning, and hail. And they are still very much in the dark as to how to predict if a tornado will escalate up the Fujita scale, or if it will just fizzle out. In many ways, the conditions for a tornado can seem as delicate as the conditions for life on Earth. In 1999, meteorologists could predict storms within a couple of days. But once that storm arrived, there were very specific signs that had to appear to indicate the formation of a tornado. The two key structures needed to form a tornado are a mesocyclone and a hook echo. And even then, not all tornadoes form under these conditions, just a majority. A mesocyclone describes when a warm horizontal vortex of air, called a horizontal vorticity tube, is lifted into the atmosphere by cool updraft winds. The vortex continues to rotate and creates a hook echo, or a rotation, strong enough to wrap precipitation and debris around it. If the National Weather Service detects these two phenomena in a thunderstorm, this is enough for them to issue a tornado warning. However, many other conditions must be fulfilled for the storm to begin producing tornadoes, and this is where they become hard to predict. Cold air must continue to drift downward from the top of the storm that is touching the atmosphere. Meanwhile, warm, moist air must continue to travel up the mesocyclone and be rapidly cooled. If the dew point at ground level is less than 55 degrees Fahrenheit, then the atmosphere is too stable, and a tornado is extremely unlikely to form. Dew point describes the temperature at which moisture in the air turns to dew. The more moisture in the air, the higher the dew point. And in case that wasn't enough, a wall cloud next has to form. A wall cloud occurs when the rising warm air is cooled by rain. It then begins to rotate within the mesocyclone and lower toward the ground. As it does so, it will then absorb other nearby clouds, called scud clouds, adding to its instability. The cloud must then continue to rotate for roughly 20 minutes with perfect atmospheric conditions, at which point it may form a funnel and lower to the ground, creating a tornado. But even given all these conditions, a tornado may not form. And in some very unique situations, none of these conditions can be present, and a different type of tornado can still form. Predicting a tornado is thus one of the most difficult problems in meteorology. And so the citizens of the Midwest develop a false sense of security because as far as meteorologists are concerned, the next tornado on the proverbial and literal horizon has an equal chance of being a total wimp or a complete monster. On May 3rd, those huddled beneath the I-44 overpass and families such as the Cusacks huddled inside their homes were about to learn just how little security there is in the face of an F-5 tornado. For some of them, they were about to lose everything.
Up next, we'll follow our two groups of survivors as they weather the storm. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And now, back to the story. Around 7 p.m. on May 3, 1999, the citizens of Bridge Creek and Moore, Oklahoma, scrambled for shelter as the most powerful tornado ever recorded barreled down on top of them. Among those citizens were Kevin Weber, Kathleen Walton, her son Levi, and Scott Pittman and his two friends. Caught on the highway with the tornado approaching, they sought shelter under a nearby overpass. They were about to find out if this technique would lead to their survival. While they may have felt that this was their best option, experts strongly recommend against using an overpass for cover during a tornado. The crevice formed at the edges may seem like appealing shelter, but the small, confined space of the tunnel increases the danger of the tornado tenfold. The already fierce winds move even faster as they are funneled through the limited surface area. And worst of all, the dirt and debris carried aloft by the winds are shot through the overpass at bullet-like speeds. The crevices and rafters actually collect the debris as well, causing buildup and making the edges of the overpass an even larger target for even more debris. The recommended course of action is to find the largest ditch possible and hunker down inside of it. Scott Pittman and his friends were already tucked into the crevice of the overpass, holding on to one another for life. It was a dangerous situation, but certainly better than if they had stayed in their car. As they saw Kevin Weber approach and the Waltons coming quickly behind him, Scott leaned forward to help them up. He was immediately hit in the face by a jet of sand and dirt. Sputtering through this, he helped Kevin squeeze in next to him. Space was already running low. He next reached for Levi Walton, whose mother was pushing him forward. Scott tucked in next to Levi and realized they were out of room. The five, now beneath the overpass, took up all of the space. Scott, located on the end facing the tornado, 
found that his leg was sticking out into the open. Kathleen either saw that she wasn't going to fit or just felt that there wasn't enough time to make it the rest of the way up the ramp. She stopped moving and looked at her son. They were still holding hands. She led them in prayer. And then the tornado truly fell on top of them. Everyone felt their bodies rise into the air. They felt the highway road above shudder and even lift slightly. Screams were lost on the wind as everyone gripped the rafters above tightly, their bodies being whipped back beneath the overpass. But Kathleen, who was not in a position to hold on, was held down only by her grip on her 11-year-old son's hand. In her eyes, Levi could see that she knew his survival depended on her letting go. She told him she loved him, and then she was gone. Back at the Cusack household, Charlie and his family couldn't hear themselves think. As they held tight in their basement bathroom, they felt the whole room could be blown away at any moment. Charlie continued to push against the door, wearing his leather jacket. He thought to himself that he might as well have left it upstairs. There wasn't a jacket in the world thick enough to protect from these kinds of wind speeds. Charlie and his wife, Pam, shared a look as they realized the walls around them were beginning to lift into the air. Their girls, crying in the tub, would hopefully remain moored to the ground. As the cold, wet air whipped in beneath the rising walls, it brought with it the smell of Christmas trees. An F5 tornado has the ability to reduce matter to its most base state. It's nature's shredder. And so, when the F5 swept over Bridge Creek and then Moore, it shredded every tree and wooden house frame that it came across. This rapid destruction of wood filled the air with pine molecules, an ironically festive scent. A scent that everyone who survived the storm would remember for the rest of their lives. But the Cusack family's survival was literally up in the air. As Charlie held the door shut, Pam prayed by the sink, and the girls cried in the tub. The Cusacks had no way of knowing from their point of view, but their choice of shelter was working in their favor. Though the walls had begun to lift, the basement was already buried beneath the debris from the rest of their home. This was helping to anchor them against the 300-mile-per-hour winds. Underneath the overpass, visibility had been reduced to zero. Not that anyone was looking. The intensity of both the debris and the sound from the tornado led the five to close their eyes and mouths and tuck their heads into their chests. All were being blown up against the rafters, the wind and dirt biting at their backs. Kevin Weber's brain was firing rapidly, begging for these conditions to end. He decided to open his eyes and look down. He was immediately hit in the face with sand and dirt. Additionally, the movement of his head caused one of his legs to dangle down slightly. That movement put his leg in the path of the debris whipping through the overpass. He would never know what hit him, but he felt a strong pain in that leg, and then it went numb. 
All he could do was close his eyes and continue to hold on. He writhed in pain as wind and dirt continued to rake across his back. Next to Kevin, Scott Pittman tried to protect his own leg, which was in an even more precarious position as it dangled outside of the overpass. Scott reeled in pain as his thigh exploded with white-hot agony. He dared to look down for a moment, but he couldn't see what had happened. It felt like his leg had been cut off. Holding on between Kevin and Scott, Levi Walton just wondered what had become of his mother. Back at the Cusack household, the whole room was still threatening to fly free into the tornado. Pam's prayers gave way to screams as the air filled their lungs with dirt and caused their ears to pop. Charlie felt as if he couldn't stand another second of this torture. And luckily for him, he wouldn't have to. Around them, the house groaned as it settled back down to earth. The dirt swirling around them began to fall back to the floor, and slowly but surely, the roar of the tornado dissipated. The family's ears were ringing. It would take a few moments before their eardrums returned to normal. When Charlie could hear again, his heart soared upon hearing the sniffles of his daughters and the thankful prayers of his wife. They had survived. All that was left was to open the door and survey the damage. Beneath the overpass, the winds were also dying down. Everyone could feel their bodies slowly lowering back down to the earth. Visibility returned to the point where they could see each other again. And as the tornado and the adrenaline passed, everyone became aware of the pain in their bodies. Kevin's leg was still numb, and his back was killing him. Scott looked down to see that his leg wasn't severed, but it was bleeding profusely. When he went to move it, he could hear the flesh tear. Everyone was covered in a layer of dirt, but they had survived. However, Kathleen Walton was nowhere to be found. As they emerged from beneath the underpass, Levi began his search for his mother. Thanks for listening to Survival. We'll be back next week with the ultimate fate of our survivors and the aftermath of the most powerful tornado in Oklahoma history. You can find all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Greg Castro and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. <laughs> <laughs>